0: Welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. Another amazing episode coming for you today. I'm going to shorten up my intro so you can get right to it. There's so much information. Get out your pen and paper because you want to take notes on how to live your longest life we're digging into epigenetics. We're digging into peptides and all the best practices you need to be implementing right now to extend your life. And, and whether you're predisposed genetically to obesity or diabetes or heart disease or really any of the conventional um, illnesses, today's guest, Ryan Smith, joins me to explain it all. And he's going to decode it all. There's a lot of complex terms. so You may want to slow down the listening speed, listen to it maybe one or two times, and uh, definitely take out a pen and paper because there's a lot Lot of action items he hands us to, be able to apply to our life right now today's podcast is brought to you by bubs my favorite my only mct powder that goes into my coffee every single day sometimes goes into my pre-workout shake i feel it right away as soon as i hit that pre-workout intelligence coffee which has got my mct my lion's mane from real mushrooms my alpha gpc and my collagen also from bubs uh, my brain just feels lit my joints feel amazing And my body is ready to train and my brain is ready to go for the entire day because I'm getting that extra brain fuel from the MCT. If you guys don't know, MCT is converted in the brain to ketones much faster, immediate energy. So it's a a very powerful way to start your day or pre-workout. Head over to bubsnaturals.com and use the code MUSCLE to get hooked up with a massive discount of 20%. And thank you so much to Bubs for continuing to sponsor us. It's literally, I feel so blessed to have these incredible companies with incredible missions behind them. It's not just a great product. They're also giving a percentage of every sale to charity uh, so they can give back. And uh, what an amazing way to live. And I hope all of you are having an amazing day and living your greatest life and thriving through the stress. Keep your head high. Enjoy the podcast. Listen straight through to the end and always share with at least one person you know and love. Head over to Bell, bubsnaturals.com use the code muscle to get hooked up we are live with ryan smith ryan thank you so much for joining us again and as i said i want to uh start right off and and, uh talk about peptides everyone knows who you are you've been a guest twice on the show in the past uh the absolute best explanation of peptides certainly an incredible um, biochemical explanation and uh one Um, You know, thank you for being here, too. I I realize the scope of the world right now is incredibly challenging. uh, And I'd love to just get into how people can ultimately leverage your wisdom to improve their life. So uh, one, thank you for being here. And uh, let's let's get right to it.
1: Yeah, yeah, happy to be here and uh, happy to to discuss some of the changes and, and try and update people as best we can.
0: Yeah, so last time you we were here, we spoke a lot about TaylorMade and a lot about the incredible products that were being produced and available to the public, and a lot has changed. And the I'll let you just I'll let you just bring us up to date.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it's uh, a lot of legal and technical jargon, so I will apologize ahead of time for some of that. And, and if anyone has further questions, they can always reach out to me. Um, but, but really, unfortunately, some big changes happened in the peptide space in the beginning of 2020. And, you know, in, in addition to everything else that went wrong in 2020, uh, the FDA started to get much, much more restrictive about the things that can and cannot be compounded in a 503A compounding environment. Um, what, really one of the first changes to manifest, which I'm sure many of your listeners will probably be aware of. Um, is that the definition of biologics changed. Um, and so that was one of the first big hits that that sort of took away, uh, I would say, patients' availability of things like HCG, um, things like tesamorelin, things like GLP-1s, like liraglutide or Victoza or sem- semaglutide or some of those other GLP-1s. And so w- the reason that those got sort of taken away is because by law, compounding pharmacies are not allowed to work with biologic medications. Um, and, and typically, biologic medications have, have meant something that has been derived from some type of animal source. Um, and so, you know, using recombinant, uh, you know, bacteria vectors to express, you know, proteins or by doing, uh, you know, antibody production in some type of animal or, or something along those lines. Those have traditionally been classified as a biologic. But um, in, in really late 2019, uh, in a spending bill, they actually changed the definition of a biologic. So, in a, you know, an 1800-page spending bill, uh, the definition then changed to any amino acid sequence that was over 40 amino acids, uh, even if it had been Chemically synthesized, and yeah. so as a result, anything over forty amino acids uh, essentially is no longer available from a majority of compounding pharmacies um, due to that that logistical change. And so uh, the things we mentioned, the HCG, uh, the Tesamorelin, which is forty-four amino acids, the GLP ones, which are you know uh, varying in length, all of those essentially now have disappeared and are only available as commercial brands, such as Agrifta for the Tesamorelin or the Victoza for the Lyriclutide, um, or, or several versions of HCG which have now been sort of a commercially available generic. Um, But unfortunately, you know, there's been a big demand and compounding pharmacies were meeting that demand. And so things like HCG um, have have no longer been available or they've been much, much more expensive as they've essentially the the commercial supply has just dwindled incredibly. And so that was a big change that happened on really March 23rd of 2020. Um, One of the other secondary changes was sort of as it related to tailor-made compounding. Um, Tailor-made compounding was sort of uh, uh, issued a warning letter for the FDA for, for were doing anything which was not an FDA-approved ingredient or a constituent of an FDA-approved ingredient. Um, and so, in regards to that, uh, that means that things like, obviously, BPC, C-Link, uh, some of the mitochondrial peptides, uh, most of the peptides uh, essentially were unable to be compounded in a 503A environment. Um, and so, so they, hit, they hit TaylorMade first um, just because they're probably the biggest name in, in peptides and they had the biggest sort of product catalog. But with that being said, you're starting to see it sort of trickle down to a lot of other pharmacies. and so. While some of these products might be available now from some pharmacies, I, I would say it's a high likelihood that over the next couple of, of months to a year, uh, m- the majority of these pharmacies will stop producing this product after some regulatory conversations with, with entities like the FDA or the state pharmacy boards. Um, and so if anyone wants to look at that uh, actual legislation, it's called the 503A bulk drug substance list, which sort of governs what can and cannot be included in, in these pharmaceutical preparations. Do
0: okay, so they give an articulation as to why they would change the definition of the biologics so that's kind of part one of the question. Yeah, let's just roll that.
1: Yeah. So, so uh, the, the answers, the short answer is no. Um, You know, this was uh, essentially um, sort of an overnight decision in a spinning bill that, you know, was put forth by legislators who don't necessarily have, you know, a a lot of that science background. I think that the, the idea with recalcifying a lot of the biologics was that they wanted to make biologics easier to manufacture in this, in this sort of space as a lot of the biologic medications are one of the fastest areas of of, of medicine that's growing. Um, and, And so, so I think that the, the, They've always wanted to sort of um, reevaluate how biologics were handled, um, but this particular definition of what constitutes a, a, a biologic was probably something that didn't have a lot of, I would say, uh, um, uh, as much sort of uh, FDA guidance or, or sort of academic guidance, and more right. it was just included by the legislators.
0: Yeah, crazy. So does it seem like, I mean, this is obviously an opinionated thing, but does it seem like it was just a financial player, like the pharmaceutical companies wanted to make the money and didn't want to disperse it? You know, I, I never want to seem like a conspiracy theorist in
1: that regard. But with that yeah. being said, uh, you can you can even just take HCG as a good example. I, I would have postulated probably eighty. 80- percent of the, the U.S. supply of HCG was coming from compounding pharmacies, um, used as a way to sort of supplement hormone replacement therapy, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, some people, you know, doing it for for weight loss as well. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, a lot, some people are doing it for fertility. Um, and so, so, you know, if you can imagine that market, that's a huge market. Um, and, and with now compounding pharmacies unable to do it anymore, uh, there's definitely a financial benefit for some of those commercial manufacturers. And so um, I, it's hard to overlook uh, probably the impact that it's had to some of those commercial manufacturers. Um, uh, but but I honestly think that um, the the that change was probably due to some of the money involved with those products. But I think that the 503A bulk direct substance list was probably more motivated about restricting compounding pharmacies and some of uh, what they are able to do.
0: Do you think that's because they actually have an altruistic desire to like keep people safe? Or is it just like, we just want to regulate and be controlled? Because I, I get the, the Wild West kind of Mm-hmm. way that it seemed the compounding pharmacies were. You don't know, like half the times I would get my testosterone compounded by a pharmacy wouldn't work. My testosterone would be in the toilet. Sometimes I'd get it, it would be amazing. And so like the, the fluctuation in quality was real. Definitely, and I I think that that uh, you know compounding pharmacies
1: for for several years, uh, really since 2013 with the New England compounding incident, have had a a bad reputation uh, for lack of quality control and 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 sort of uh, uh, some of the health uh, sort of side effects associated with uh, variations in the manufacturing process. And so, I I definitely think that was a motivating factor. Um, However, you know, I think that that my argument for it would be, uh, you know, more to to control the actual processes and procedure, and then less so about what can and cannot be done because I think that what ends up happening is you take a lot of um, a, a lot of uh, I would say uh, of the power out of the physicians' hands to make the appropriate clinical decision, um, and in and, and vice versa, you're also uh, essentially driving some people to to uh, sort of unauthorized supplies, which is a big problem in the peptide market already. With a lot of these sort of uh, research chemical companies uh, being the predominant source for a lot of people in this regard, um, and and you know, uh, and so so I think that there, there are probably better ways to have managed that particularly thing especially given that uh, the peptides have, have been uh, such a fast growing area of medicine um, and, and their need has been clinically demonstrated I would say by by a large number of patients and a large number of physicians I, I would have liked to have seen something more like that um, rather than restricting compounding pharmacies outright but but I, but I can completely understand the rationale for, for for why they they did that thing
0: how much of variability is there in the compounding pharmacies access to the raw ingredients are they all using the same raws or like so is the variability coming within the raw or is it coming in the the production processes it's
1: hard to say. I mean, uh, you know, it would all depend on, on the pharmacies' protocol and procedures, but, uh, you know, for, especially for things like the newer peptides, uh, the number of manufacturers who can provide the bulk API or the active pharmaceutical ingredient um, is, is very, very few. Uh, you know, and so so generally, I would say that most of these uh, pharmacies are getting supply from the same uh, wholesale manufacturers. Um, and, and generally, I would say that that's probably less likely um, to be the, the area of fluctuation. And it's probably more, compounding practices um, and then uh, and also sort of the stability and, and, and the documentation that most pharmacies should have for everything that they compound.
0: Yeah so that would be then the biggest difference between someone like a tailor-made and some other you know whomever uh, compounding pharmacy it's just like the the diligence and adherence to process to make sure you're getting through with the highest quality thing.
1: Uh, absolutely, and and, uh, and and I would encourage you know consumers to really stick up for themselves on that behalf, and and to read into a little bit more or ask questions directly to the pharmacy. Um, but but yeah, you know absolutely. And I think it's important to note here that I'm no longer affiliated with Tailor Made Compounding. Um, you know, I, I still think that they do a great job at what they do, um, but but my day to day business is is not as much with them anymore. Um yeah. into some of these changes,
0: which is why we're here, and we're here to talk about something different than peptides. But I thought I couldn't waste the opportunity to get to the peptide guy himself. So uh, epigenetics is your new area. Of focus, and you've left TaylorMade to join True Diagnostics. Tell me about that. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So, you know, one of the one of the other, you know, uh, uh, really big questions about a lot of these peptides is what is their long term impact? What is their clinical impact? Because I I know that for many of these peptides, uh, we've always seen an immediate effect. Um, You know, take BPC for instance, where people have been using that for you know pain reduction or healing, and and I think that we have you know. Hundreds of case studies showing that we've seen improvement in patient symptoms. But uh, you know, in terms of objective data, what biomarkers do you get? Do you take blood-based biomarkers for inflammation? You know, what do you measure, Um, and how do you sort of show objectively that these measurements are changing with treatment? Um, That's always been a big limitation with a lot of these peptides because they're so new in the clinical literature. And so, um, you know, I've always been sort of paying attention to to new ways we can sort of uh, uh, show some of the benefit of some of these products. And uh, you know, for Years I've tracked this this idea of epigenetic biologic aging. Um, it really happened in 2013, uh, where two clocks were published, and, and these clocks were pretty cool, but not yet I would say clinically applicable. They were just scientific, uh, you know, uh, interesting, clever methods. Uh, and you know th- what they were able to do is take a bit of your blood, look at epigenetic methylation, which we can go into uh, a little bit later. But by looking at the the epigenetics, the changes above the genome sequence, uh, they were able to correlate that highly to age. Um, um, actually more highly correlated to age than they would have anticipated, maybe even something that might be causing the aging process. Um, and, and so these clocks were first created, and and really they were put to use in things like uh, forensics to see how old someone might be at a crime scene, um, if they've left their DNA, or uh, they were even using it for refugees to see if they were eligible for asylum, if they were minors or adults, um, you know, because oftentimes that, that, that is not clear from whenever you're fleeing a country and have, have poor documentation um, and so they were they were used uh, in, in, in a society level relatively immediately um, but their their impact into clinical medicine took a little bit of time as they started to, to link some of these aging associated uh, measurements or this idea of biological age to different health related outcomes and really in in 2019 in September of 2019 there was really a hallmark study published which was sort of a proof-of-concept study um, which was the trim trial TRIIM um, which Stands for essentially thymic rejuvenation uh, and, and immunorestoration and insulin mitigation. So um, the thought process there was: uh, Would they be able to use three products—DHEA, growth hormone, uh, and metformin—to um, first off regenerate the thymus um, and then have some type of effect on this biological age metric? Um, and in that study, there were only nine patients, but uh, over the course of one and a half years, they were able to document a two and a half year age reversal in the majority of those patients. Um, so very much proof of concept. Very very much small scale. But they, what they were able to essentially do is, was show as a proof of concept, you can reverse the aging process um, from a molecular objective basis. Um, and and the impact that, that that had on me was, I would say, sort of phenomenal because I started thinking, hey, you know, all of these products we know are helping immediately and also probably having a long-term impact, we can essentially validate now objectively. And And one of the interesting things about these metrics is it's not just about biological age, but they have concrete mathematical links to health outcomes. And by looking at those objective links to health outcomes, you can also demonstrate that reversing or changing this metric could also reverse or change the links and predisposition to those diseases. And so, instead of having to do a 40-year placebo-controlled follow-up study uh, to see how it's affecting people in the future, you can really get an instantaneous look at how some of these these products can affect this aging rate and then, therefore, affect the risk of disease. And and that, for me, was incredibly exciting. Um, And and so, I started to research a little bit more. And and as I did, I, I got more and more excited about the of of methylation and methylation diagnostics. um, and, and thought that this was probably a better fit for, uh, what I wanted to do for the rest of
0: my life. Very cool, man. So let's talk about methylation. I don't, I don't assume that the general population has any idea. Maybe they've heard the word, maybe they know they need to take methylated B vitamins, but they don't actually know what the process is. I'd love to have you just break it down. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that, you know, in the integrative space, people who
1: are preventative and functional minded, I think that whenever they hear methylation, that is definitely what they think about. They think about methylated B vitamins like methylfolate or methylcobalamin and and having, you know, uh uh I would say MTHFR variants which might predispose them to higher levels of homocysteine, which is associated with cardiac-related, you know, uh, disadvantages. Um, And so that is not necessarily what we're talking about, although it is linked, because what we're actually talking about is the expression of what is transcribed from your DNA. Um, And and so, uh, you know, the way that I usually like to describe that is by saying, you know, every cell in our body has the exact same DNA. If we were to take a skin cell versus your heart cell, we would see that same baseline DNA sequence. Um, However, if we were to look at the epigenetic changes, so uh, essentially, the two major epigenetic changes are going to be um, acetylation and, and methylation. Um, and, and really, methylation is usually found in the promoter regions of genes, and it essentially turns off uh, the genes activity, uh, whereas acetylation will tend to open up these histones, which sort of bind your DNA and make uh, it more able to be transcribed. And so um, this is what sort of gives your, the different cells in your body their, cl- their phenotype, right? It's why your heart cells behave and look like heart cells. It's why you're, you know... You know, your your skin cells behave and look like skin cells. It's it's what genes are being expressed to give that its cellular identity, um, and, and and so uh, that's really exciting because it takes us a little bit further from you know the baseline DNA sequence. I think everyone thought uh, you know when DNA was was you know sort of uh, now going to full full genome sequencing, and, and everyone thought this will be the way that we solve a lot of these these scientific related questions and problems. Um, and then it was a little bit underwhelming. While they might be able to predict some risk at higher levels, uh, they didn't capture the whole picture. And I think that uh, by looking at the, the epigenetics and what is actually transcribed from that DNA, um, you can get a much better picture of what's happening in your body to give those phenotypes, um, particularly as it relates to aging. I think that, um, you know, uh, if for, if for any of your listeners who've actually read Dr. Sinclair, David Sinclair's uh, 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 book, he, he often talks about information loss. Um, and, and I think that's a really good analogy because as we start, uh, you know, as we're born, our epigenetics are perfect, right? What should be uh, methylated is. What, what shouldn't be is not. So the right genes are turned on and off. But as we sort of live life and and continue to replicate cells and and face insults from the environment um, and and face nutritional deficiencies, that regulation of what should be expressed in our genes, slowly starts to to lose its shape and, and lose its identity. And so we slowly start to lose information. And what that ha- what happens from that is that you slowly start to have that change the phenotype of the cell. Uh, so the way that the cell should behave is different from the way it currently behaves. Um, and then all of that sort of leads to, this progressive loss of function, which which we categorize as aging. Um, And so I think one of the really interesting things about this uh, epigenetics and and, and its relationship to aging um, is that uh, we can really – view aging as a disease of sort of information loss of the cell. And, and if we view it like that, then we can sort of say, uh, we can make interventions to make that, that epigenetic identity or, or your epigenetic aging process a little slower um, and, and really prevent that, that degradation and loss of function that occurs with age. Um, and, and as it relates to age, age is the number one um, risk factor for almost all chronic disease. So Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, all of those things have age as the number one risk factor. Um, but, but with phenotypic variation, you know, uh, everyone knows an 80 year old that looks like a 60 year old and everyone knows a 60 year old that looks like an 80 year old. And and so this is a more accurate measurement to sort of see what your body, how your body is aging and then mitigating that risk factor of aging, um, and treating aging as a disease. That's really exciting. So we can actually
0: do practice real preventative, real personalized medicine. That's an amazing explanation. I've ever heard it said like that before. Thank you. Um, so are you guys pretty positive in your accuracy of the measurement of methylation. So like last time you and I spoke, you're like, man, we have this advanced method of testing. You sent me a kit. And uh, so you can tell pretty accurately in your best judgment, like what aging rate is or what aging age may or biological age may be.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think that this is
0: uh, that's a
1: great question because I think it uh, this is something that is is a little bit misunderstood by physicians and, and patients alike. Is is what is this metric and how is it being used and how was it developed? Because all of those are important considerations because uh, because of the the complex science that's involved to actually tell these things. And so one of the biggest differences that I like to to make everyone aware of are the differences between the actual molecular diagnostic and then the way to interpret that to health outcomes. So those are two separate parts. And and really, in order to create the molecular data, to gather the data from your own body, that's a relatively easy um, and well-replicated process. Um, And so, uh, we actually use an array-based method where we um, uh, essentially take the DNA, we uh, extract it from your blood, um, then we do is something called the bisulfite conversion. And then we image it uh, to look at essentially the percentage of methylation at each location in your genome. And we look at over 900,000 of those. Um, and, and so by getting that percentage of methylation, that's the first step. And that, that is really the output of actually what we're finding in your blood. However, if we were to just to get that data, it would be essentially useless, right? We have to correlate that to something that is understandable and related to your health. And in order to do that, you have to use the, these algorithms, which have been developed uh, via computer learning. Um, particular, uh, they, they sort of take these huge data sets and they look at all, all the methylation data that we get. So they get the percentage of methylation at all those 900,000 sites, and then they relate it via computer learning to some output variable that might be in most cases age, right? Where we are able to then have uh, a, an algorithm, which is able to predict age off of those measurements. Um, and that's really what happened in 2013, uh, really led by two, in, uh, two different types of researchers, Dr. Uh, um, Greg Hanum um, and then also Dr. Steve Horvath. and, and I think Dr. Steve Horbath is, is really recognized as a leader in this field uh, at the moment, especially as it relates to epigenetic aging. Um, and, uh, and his algorithms are, are I would say, the, the leaders. And I think he'll actually probably win a Nobel Prize for them just due to how um, specific they are and how accurate they are at, at predicting the biological age of, of many different people. Um, and now even we actually see that that's, uh, he's created clocks in different species, um, and including mice, so that they can actually do some baseline investigations and in animal models to really see what's Aging us and how to correct that.
0: So is it the basic things that everyone knows to be healthy versus non healthy that are most um, implicated in shifting our methylation? Well, yeah. So, so that's actually a good point. And to take it a step back a little bit, that's one of the other benefits of these
1: epigenetic changes is that they're changeable for at least for the majority. And so it allows you to take a little bit more control, right? You can't change your baseline genetic sequence unless you're doing something like gene therapy, um, but you can change the epigenetic expression of many of your genes. Um, and, and already, especially in cancer, there are many FDA approved drugs, which have an epigenetic mechanism where they might affect methylation or, 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 you know, prevent methylation or encourage it at certain genetic locations. And so, um, so the good news is you can change it. And, and um, with that being said, you know whenever you're comparing the things that make the biggest difference, uh, it, it, this is a very, very new science. And so in 2013, these algorithms were published. Uh, really, there wasn't a lot of, I would say, clinical uh, work in this until 2018 and 2019. And so this is still very, very new. But what they can tell from epidemiological correlation studies is that it, you're exactly right. The, the things that are generally healthy for a human that we've known to be healthy also affect the aging rate. Um, And so, that would include things like uh, sleep and stress, right? As simple as that. It would include diet and nutrition. Um, And so, what we are slowly starting to see is that we can actually um, make recommendations on how to fix individual lifestyles, um, not even considering medicational interventions, but things like stress and sleep and diet and exercise. All of those things have an impact on your epigenetics and can be controlled to give yourself a better epigenetic aging rate, which will, in turn, reduce your risk uh, of of all these age-related diseases.
0: Is it as simple, when you're looking at these snapshots of of the DNA and the the, uh, epigenetic methylations, is it as simple as like the relative percentage of your entire DNA strand that's been methylated? So, you know, assuming we make the assumption that people have an average lifespan of 100 years, 90% of your gene has been been methylated, therefore we know you have a biological age of 90. Is that like, that sounds like an obviously really oversimplified thought, but I'm curious what it looks like.
1: Yeah, you. Well, so you're not too far off. What they essentially do is put all this data in one big room and then see how it's connected, right? They say, you know, the in particular for the Horvath algorithm, there there were 353 locations out of 450,000 that he looked at. Um, so they, you know, they they're they're narrowing this down to a really really um, I would say predictive subset, the things that change the most with age over the course of a lot of different people. Um, and, and so uh, in that, they're not necessarily looking at higher methylation all the time. They're also looking at hypomethylation. So how these things Things change as it relates to the entire aging population. And so, um, so that's how they create these algorithms, which essentially uh, require you to put in um, that beta value or that percentage of methylation at a particular location, multiply it by some type of standard, um, and then sort of do that for all 353 spots, and then um, do some other mathematical manipulation to give you, as an output, a biologic age.
0: Got it. makes a lot of sense. So, um, I'm curious. So when I first interviewed someone from, I think it's a company out of the UK called chronobiology or something like that, Mm -hmm. it seemed as though the amount of available information with respect to epigenetics was relatively narrow. They're like, you know, we have some methylation on toxin exposure and smoke exposure and some stuff on methylation, but not too much. And that was, that was a few years ago. And I'm curious to know, like, what, what can we predict besides age? You know, there's other, um, I'm sure other things that are being uh, determined or read through epigenetic um,
1: readings. Definitely, and that's that's really the beauty of it, and why this is so exciting, is because um, you know the the world we're in right now is a big data world, right? You look at your Facebooks and your Googles who are doing a lot of algorithm development to sort of manage what you see on social media platforms, and 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 it hasn't just affected you know social media or or technology; it's also affected medicine, and so um, that's really why this uh, this idea of epigenetics is now so exciting because we can use these computer learning platforms to pull out uh, correlations between multiple different things. And so uh, the, what you can do from an epigenetic perspective is essentially limitless because you can cross-train the methylation to other factors. Um, you know, uh, one good example of that is, is uh, an algorithm called GrimAge, actually made by Dr. Horvath from UCLA. Um, and that is able to actually even predict death. Um, and, and the way that he's done that is by essentially, um, he, he looked at 88 proteins in the blood and, and, and got a, a objective quantifiable values of those methyla- those those proteins along with age. Um, and then with that, was able to pull out essentially seven proteins, which were the most highly correlated to age. Um, and, and actually with now this methylation measurement, he can predict uh, in that algorithm, you actually predict the sort of the, the quantity of those proteins in the blood. Um, and, and so what this allows us to do is to really apply this to every type of medicine. Um, all we need is essentially the covariates uh, that you want to look at. So let's just say we want to be able to predict Alzheimer's we need an Alzheimer's population we need a non-Alzheimer's population and people who are progressing towards Alzheimer's and see look at the methylation change as it relates to the blood and and whenever we start to pick out these trends we can apply these algorithms to then create predictive risk of almost any disease um, and, and so uh, I, definitely I, I would say in your previous conversation that that was absolutely right there's not a lot of data out there but uh, what we're starting to see now is a deluge of, of new algorithms which are able to predict different outcomes there's some to predict the age of your brain There's some to be able to predict your risk of of cancer. That's actually probably the biggest area in epigenetic research with billions of dollars per year going into it um, is the idea of this liquid biopsy or or a cancer detection at stage zero where they just take some of your blood and and are able to find one or two different cells in your body which might have some cancer risk, which then you can intervene for. Um, And so the sensitivity of this this metric, I think, is, is really displayed by that type of technology where you're able to look at in all of your body with billions of cells, you're able to look at essentially one or two, which might be abnormal and detect that early. And I think that shows the specificity, but it also shows that you can train this to just about anything you want. Um, And so we're working on a lot of those to create things like uh, measurements of stem cell depletion. We're looking to be able to create um, algorithms which predict uh, levels of senescence in the body and how good of a candidate you might be for things like rapamycin or disatinib and quercetin, or from a peptide perspective, the FOXO4 DRI. Um, And so, you know, this really, this measurement can be trained to a lot of different things. It just needs the appropriate data sets. And now that we're uh, in this sort of data-based world, uh, that information is becoming much, much more available. And the applications are sort of endless, almost uh, a little bit science fiction too, because we can tell how much you've smoked over your entire lifetime, you know, how much you've drank across your entire lifetime, how much macronutrients you've eaten in the past week. You know, those are some of the things that you can tell from this technology with incredibly, uh, yes, uh, incredible specificity. Um, You know, we we think we're very, very close to having a, a, a diagnostic that is more sensitive for diabetes risk than fasting insulin and A1C. Um, And, uh, and, you know, the advantages of this can be applied to every area of medicine um, and uh, even some beyond medicine where, uh, you know, we can talk about pharmacoepigenetics, you know, how how likely you respond to metformin, how likely are are you to experience side effects from metformin. Um, And so, all of these things are are just, uh, I would say, uh, just now starting, but the the potential here is limitless. And and some people have even postulated that this will overtake blood testing in the next 20 years. Uh, You know, I'm a little bit skeptical of that as I think blood testing will always have its place but uh this is just another measurement which can really help uh from a clinical perspective
0: do we have people who are kind of following that up and going, okay we identify you as having high risk of alzheimer's diabetes heart disease whatever and now here's what to do about it are you guys already working on that Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. that, that's actually probably, uh, the one piece that we're most excited
1: to do is, is not now that we have these, uh, you know, these really well published algorithms and really well vetted algorithms on biologic age, the question goes to how do you change that, right? How do you make interventions and what are the best interventions? Mm-hmm. And that's another, you know, area of, of, uh, of hopefully excitement for everyone involved because, uh, no longer, whenever we're talking about anti-aging, you just sort of have to throw everything at the wall and see what you like the most, right? right. Now yeah. we have, uh, now we have objective ways to validate the effect in people and also, uh, makes it personalized the effect of you know metformin on me might be different than met- the effect of metformin on you and so by getting these individual diagnostics we can start to create longevity plans which will hopefully help us live a much much longer life but also increase health span as well where we're living lives that we actually want to live
0: Hey everybody, it's Ben. I want to interrupt you for a moment to tell you a little story and tell you about a book that I'm reading. So way back in 2007 is really when I started my personal transformation journey. I was an aspiring bodybuilder going through a lot of psychological challenges, we'll say. And um, reading wasn't something that I had started doing at that point. I did it all through college and it wasn't something that I had made a daily habit. And one of my greatest friends, in fact, actually a coach at the time, Introduce me to a resource. I'm gonna tell you about this resource. Um, but first I want to tell you about a book that I'm reading it's called The Tools. Uh, it's certainly one of the books that I most highly suggest to most people I meet, but here's how I came across The Tools. Rather than reading the entire book, because you hear about a book and you're like, well, I'm not sure if this is exactly what I'll read. I'm not sure if it resonates with me. Um, how can I learn more? And one of the greatest resources I think right now that exists on the internet, is this website called optimize me, optimize.me. And you guys may have heard my podcast with Brian Johnson. He's the creator and founder of optimize.me. Way back in 2007, it was called Philosopher's Notes. And Brian was an aspiring philosopher. And what he would do is he would read about a book a week and he would summarize the book and give you the five big ideas. And I've literally been watching these Philosopher's Notes on YouTube since way back in 2007. And it was just a life-changing thing for me to be able to, one, get all of the big ideas from a book and learn in 10 minutes, which is the length of the videos. And then once I signed up for, at the time, what was Philosopher's Notes, which is now optimized.me, I started getting all of these books. Brian's got over 600 of the best books of all time. He's also recently added something called Plus One and something called Mastery, which is going deep on a very particular topic. And it's literally one of the most um, incredible resources I've ever come across for learning how to accelerate your personal journey, your personal growth. Um, so sometimes we don't have time in a day to read a book, right? We don't have time to sit down and spend an hour reading a book. A typical book takes between 8 and 12 hours of total time if you're reading consistently to read. Now, so on average to read that, most people are going to take weeks and sometimes months, especially because sitting down for 30 to 60 minutes of time, is not always reasonable. A lot of people hack that with audiobooks, and that's wonderful. Um, but one of my favorite things to do to test out if these books are really good, because like you, I've got a list a mile long of the books I should read. And I don't know where to start. So my resource and my go-to is Uh, Optimize.me. Brian and his team are hooking us up with an incredible discount, even though it's already ridiculously cheap, for $9 a month, $9.97 a month, you get to access all of this information. And they're hooking us up with 10% off if you guys sign up for a lifetime membership, which is incredibly, incredibly valuable to begin with. One other thing I'll mention is there's also a coaching program that Brian offers, and I've actually joined the coaching program, and it's a 300-day coaching program. I'm actually going to be featured as one of the luminaries, but I've literally paid to become part of the program myself. I've become part of a team, and each day we go through new daily tasks, and each week we have new lessons and it's been an incredibly valuable tool that myself and many of my coaches have signed up for on our own free will, because we see the wisdom and the brilliance in Brian and his team and his mission, and his message that is continuously evolving and getting more and more clear. And I'm a part of a team now with over a thousand coaches in this Optimize Coach program. And I would love for you all to check it out. Brian's hooking us up with a code. So if you go to optimize.me slash muscle, you can get hooked up with 10% off, uh, the ability to try it out, uh, I know you're going to love it. I know you're going to use it. It's so easy. I've actually made a commitment to doing two a week, two books a week, and, and literally, so it's a 10-minute video or, or MP3, a six-page PDF, Or you can obviously um, just go through and kind of search which ones you want. So uh, it's an incredible, valuable resource. And I hope you guys will all take advantage of this incredible limited time opportunity to jump in there and join me and thousands and thousands of other people as we optimize our life and become the greatest version of ourselves and ultimately gather all of this wisdom in less time. And Brian's mission is to combine ancient wisdom with modern science. And I think isn't that so beautiful and really in parallel with what we do here at Muscle Intelligence, head over to optimize.me slash muscle, use the code muscle10, and I'll let you guys back to this episode. I hope you love it. I hope you have a great day. Don't forget to check out Optimize. Optimize. So you sent over some of your reports uh, for me to kind of peruse before we chatted, and there's something that mentioned intrinsic versus extrinsic age. Can you tell me about that?
1: Yeah, so that's a it's a complicated subject, but a very very important one because of two reasons. One is that the uh, intrinsic and extrinsic age capture different things, um, and and beyond that, they're related to different risk factors. Um, in particular, extrinsic age is much much more predictive of premature death, for instance, um, and and then alternatively, the treatments for each are also different, um, and, and so. We know that they're important from, uh, from first off, predicting risk, and second off, how we actually make changes to that risk. Um, but to describe sort of the example of each, uh, I, I like to go into one important caveat of a lot of this testing, which is that the cells you're actually testing are incredibly important. Um, you know, a lot of people offer these this type of epigenetic test in saliva, uh, which we are, are highly against because all of these algorithms have been created and validated off of blood. You know, if we were to take a sample of your, your brain tissue, for instance, um, and, and run the exact same algorithm as we did on your blood, we would get much much lower ages, as the, the brain tends to age at a much lower rate. If we were to take your breast tissue, we'd actually see higher ages because your breast tissue ages at a higher rate. And so the tissue we're actually testing is incredibly important, and every type of cell is going to have a different epigenetic profile, which is no, probably one of the biggest limitations of epigenetics um, is that it's all cell specific. So if we're wanting to get data about how your liver is functioning, we really need a biopsy of your liver, um, unless unless we can cross train the liver changes to your blood changes right and and then then we can sort of use the blood as a measurement but but by far blood is is the the intended I should say, the, the most validated source of, of this DNA. And so the, the problem, though, with blood is that the majority of the cells we actually get DNA from in your blood are lymphocyte cells. So these are your immune cells, right? Your B cells, your T cells, your natural killer cells. Um, and and one of the unfortunate things that happens as we age is that our immune systems get worse, right? It's the same reason that that uh, you know older people are the first in line for the COVID vaccine, um, or they're more recommended to get the flu vaccine every year is their immune system gets worse with age. Um, and one of the reasons is that the Cells in the blood change with age, um, and so we we have sort of you know more natural killer cells, but they're less effective. We have less naive T cells. We have more senescent T cells, and so uh, what we're actually measuring in the blood also changes with age, um, and that can be a big problem if you don't control for it. Um, and so so simply put, the the intrinsic age controls for that change in immune cells over age. It makes sure that that's factored out of the equation and gives us really the pure fundamental basis of aging. That 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 baseline epigenetic Genetic aging, um, whereas the extrinsic age, on the other hand, doesn't control for that uh, over time, and really, as a result, can be a, a surrogate marker for our immune age or how old your immune system is. Um, and, and so, so the and as I mentioned, they're each linked to different health outcomes. Extrinsic so that, that immune system age is much much more highly correlated to death, which makes sense because we've always known that T cells um, have a high link to premature death. Um, and, and so, so those are the sort of the difference between each, but also the treatments associated with each are, are vastly different. Um, you know from a nutritional perspective, we know that eating more chicken is much more likely to change your intrinsic aging rate, where we know that things like diet and, and uh, I should say exercise and, and fish consumption and, and, and moderate drinking of alcohol are more likely to change your extrinsic aging rate. Um, and and circling back to that, that first trial I mentioned, the the, the Trim trial, which showed that 2.5-year reduction in age over the course of 1.5 years, that's the reason that, that they sort of almost designed the protocols because what they were doing with the growth hormone was actually regenerating the thymus. And by regenerating the thymus, is they can improve the immune system. And so what that was a dose on that, Ryan,
0: just kind of tangent, what was the dose of the growth hormone? So I, I, I'll have to look it up
1: uh, for you. I think it was something like uh, 0.05 milligrams per kilogram, I think. Um, but I'll have to double check on that. And so I don't know from an IU perspective, which is how most people are dosing it. Um, yeah. But, uh, but they were also doing 50 milligrams of DHEA and 500 milligrams of the uh, metformin. Um, and so that was the protocol,
0: but they were essentially was used all the, the time? time. Is that something you personally implement all the time? So, so I would say we're we're big fans of DHEA
1: here. Um, you know, uh, one of the reasons is because of the 353 spots in that original Horvath algorithm, um, uh, 85 of those spots are located at or near glucocorticoid receptor elements. So one thing we know is that stress and cortisol have a big impact on this measurement. And one of the things that DHEA can do is mitigate the effects of cortisol. And so I'm a big fan of, of using DHEA. Um, uh, we haven't, I would say, seen the same in our dataset, which is now one of the largest pri- private datasets available we haven't seen the same correlation with metformin, which is a little bit disappointing. And so, um, you know, from a, from a aging perspective, I like DHEA. Um, I don't necessarily know that we see it, the epigenetic related changes with metformin. Um, but from a growth hormone perspective, that is something that is, I would say, uh, uh very, very predictable in, in reducing epigenetic age, especially if you're older and have a reduced, uh, immune system already. What age was, what does it older mean? So generally over 55, uh, would be, uh, would be that subset. But, but with that being said, we're also seeing reductions in younger individuals as well with people on growth hormone secretagogues, like the CJC, the Tesamorelin, or the, the yeah. um, and uh, as well as growth hormone itself.
0: So um, again, one of the, one of those forms you sent over spoke a lot about triglycerides with respect to the ABCG1 mm-hmm. um, genes. I'd love to just have you go down the path of like, what are, what are you seeing with respect to triglycerides and even maybe getting into, you spoke a little bit about diabetes.
1: Yeah, so, well, so I should say, so that diabetes risk predictor is a little bit different um, in how we handle it, because what that is actually looking at is a low-size specific report, much like you would have for your genetics, right, where they look at how a particular gene might have a SNP. Uh, what we're looking at is essentially methylation on a certain gene, because that's been correlated to the outcome of diabetes. And so as I was referencing, uh, the ABGC1 um, gene, as well as the phospho1 uh, gene, uh, both of those are highly linked to being predictive of diabetes risk. And so, um, you know, they're not, I would say, incredibly um, uh, sensitive, right? So, some people with type 2 diabetes might register as no risk or no increased risk. Um, but if you do register, incredibly specific, if you do register for increased risk, uh, that, that definitely puts you in a new, uh, another class where you might want to consider some type of uh, diabetes treatment intervention like a GLP-1 or, uh, you know, metformin or, or uh, um, you know, a SGL-2 inhibitor um, because, you know, your risk is significantly higher. And so, that that's one we're really excited about. But what that that's looking at is essentially how those genes are expressed in blood. and and what they're leading to in in terms of a clinical outcome. So, it's a little bit different. But, but, you know, in terms of clinical biomarkers, right, things you might measure at a doctor's office anyway that are related to this metric of of epigenetic age, uh, there's another algorithm that's worth mentioning. It's it's, uh, uh, called PhenoAge um, by um, Dr. Morgan Levine, who was a postdoc student of Dr. Horvath at UCLA. Um, And and that actually was able to to look at clinical covariates, things like C-reactive protein, things like, you know, serum albumin, and and actually then create an epigenetic algorithm to predict age off of that and so um, unfortunately triglycerides weren't incorporated in that so we we don't think that triglycerides are necessarily directly related to these epigenetic markers of age Um, but but we do know that they are directly related to to diabetes risk
0: very cool man this is such a fascinating topic i'm curious what the kind of most current thing is on on your radar or what you're working toward in the future where do you see this going yeah, it's, I mean the the, the
1: application is, is really limitless. You know, our our the the thought process behind our organization is to create as many predictive algorithms as we can, right? In, in, for particular disease sets. And then secondarily to that, now that we have an algorithm which can appropriately predict, how do we appropriately change, right? What types of interventions, medication, diet, nutrition can can we recommend to really reduce risk in those areas. And so um, that that's definitely, I would say, where we want to go in the future. But there are, in order to get there, it takes a lot of work and a lot of data. Um, and so right now, probably our, our biggest application is in the areas of aging and longevity, because uh, that is still the biggest risk factor for most of these chronic diseases. To give you a, a really good statistic, if you were to reduce the aging rate in the, the for everyone in the population by seven years, so they would be seven years younger than their chronologic age, um, you would essentially cut disease in half. Morbidity would be decreased by Fifty percent, and so whenever you start to think of this population level impact, that's pretty significant. Another really good one is that if everyone were to just reduce their aging rate by twenty percent, you would save the U.S. over five trillion dollars in healthcare spending. I mean, so this 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 pre- idea of preventive medicine has always been something we know works, but have never been able to you know to really implement on a large basis. And I think one of the ways we can do that is through aging. Viewing aging as a disease and getting it classified as a d- disease which can be managed, um, I think, would be a major impact. And so we're focusing a lot. Lot of our initiatives into how to control that aging process. And so we're doing a, a lot of uh, sort of research, a lot of research studies on interventions, looking at everything from, you know, plasma apheresis to exosomes, to stem cells, to senolytic therapies, and seeing how they change these measurements um, so that we can start to make recommendations on how individual people should, should make interventions to reduce their aging rate. Um, and, and we're working with a, a lot of great organizations on this. Um, you know, we, we're right now hopefully uh, collaborating with Duke and Columbia uh, to do a really unique algorithm. Called the the Dunedin POAM, which is an instantaneous rate of aging, and and so that adds a lot of value to this particular uh, area of research because let's just say that you lived a, a terrible life uh, before you're 35. Let's just say you did you know recreational drug use, high stress, no sleep, poor nutrition, or you know, we're okay. a professional bodybuilder, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, you know, so a, a lot of that stress. So, but how do you you know let's just say you flip a switch and you know you hit you hit 35 and then you start doing everything the right way, and and, and so you let's just say you measure your your DNA now and you say, uh, Oh, this person has a bad biological aging rate what they're doing might not be correct. That's You can't say that because of uh, some of the, the, I should say, the the history that is sort of accumulated in their epigenetics. And so you really need something to be able to tell how they're aging right now versus their overall biological age. And and so that's one of the things that we're hoping to, to make widely available um, through this dunedin PoAM algorithm, which sort of tells you instantaneously, what is your speedometer of aging? Are you aging at a 0.6 biological year per year uh, basis, or are you aging at a, a 1.4 biological year uh, per, per year basis and so by keeping that down you can mitigate risk and you know for instance if you're even slightly above one on that metric one biological year per year you increase your risk of the uh, I should say you you increase your risk of the development of some type of chronic disease by 54% in wow. the next seven years you uh, actually uh, increase your risk of death by by 56% in the next seven years and so those are incredibly predictive hazard ratios in, you know and, and much much improved on things like telomeres right which is generally I would say how the inner the Community has looked at at measuring aging, which is you know has some limitations. I don't want to throw the you know throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. But it's generally not as accurate or as predictive of health outcomes as some of these new composite biomarkers. Um, and, and so, uh, so, it, so we're seeing some great improvements on just being able to measure aging, aging, and and with the more data we get, we'll be able to to say this is the things we've seen correlate with better aging and you know lower uh, disease and and just beginning to build those protocols and, and distribute them widely to the community, we think that that's going to have a massive population-level health impact.
0: All right. You said two words now that, that I have to pull out, and it was actually in the previous st- statement you made, and I wanted to hold off on this, but um, you said the word vaccine, and you also said the word genetics in the same uh, sentence. It's like, hey, I got to pull this out. And, and I don't know that you have any data specific to the coronavirus vaccine, but specific to any vaccine, is there, have you, have you seen direct correlations, positive or negative, from a vaccine? And if so, have you seen the Corona implications? Because I've heard there could be massive genetic implications, epigenetic implications from these vaccines.
1: So so unfortunately, you know, I would say that that our data sets don't have that data yet. Um, And and so in terms of who's been vaccinated for what and what are the changes pre and post. However, with that being said, uh, uh, Cornell actually about, I would say about three weeks ago now, published um, a study showing the changes, um, epigenetic changes in in COVID patients and and actually using those epigenetic methylation marks to predict severity of COVID. And when we saw that, we were very, very excited because although we've only been a company since July of 2020, um, we have several individuals um, who have taken a baseline epigenetic methylation test and then have since developed COVID. Um, and also those who have taken the test and since had had the vaccine. And so that is absolutely actually something we're hoping to collaborate with with Cornell. Um, we actually have a call as soon as we get off the phone uh, to discuss those data sets and to uh, to hopefully publish even by the spring, um, not only the changes that happen with, with COVID development, but also the changes we might expect to see from the Moderna and the
0: Pfizer vaccine. Very cool, that would be huge because I, I hear like there's there's some conspiracy theories being thrown around about like long-term potential negative effects of these vaccines, long-term negative effects of of corona itself. Are you up to date on any of that science? I know it's kind of out of your it, it is in your in your realm really, right?
1: Yeah, you know, definitely. I, you know, I try and stay as up to date as possible because you know the physicians that we're working with uh, have to be up to date as well, and, and being yeah. able to help guide them uh, uh, is definitely you know uh, um, a benefit. And so, with that being said, yeah, the the sort of the uh, the long hauler syndrome or the the uh, that they call with COVID or sort of these post uh, um, sort of these inflammatory sequences that continue to develop after a COVID infection um, are definitely a huge topic of research, not just in epigenetics but in in most of the multi-omes. So trans- and proteomics and, and all of these things, looking at how to mitigate those effects, um, you know, I, in terms of their actual clinical impact and, and how to change clinical Protocols and procedures. I don't think we're there yet in terms of knowing enough information. But but there's no doubt we know that that they have some effect. And you know, as we relate to the new type of vaccine, this mRNA that based vaccine, uh, I think that that skepticism is, is definitely healthy. Um, in you know, in, in approaching any new technology. Um, and, and and so uh, so hopefully we'll be able to to add to that um, by uh, by having some objective data about what's changing and, and what genes are are most linked to those changes and what that might mean for future health related outcomes.
0: Are you willing to share your corona kind of prophylaxis uh regimen you
1: you know uh, I would say yes and no <laughs> um you know i I definitely don't want to uh to to recommend treatment or or make any claims but with that being said I, I, you know we I, we measure it with this extrinsic epigenetic age, the age of the immune system right, and along with that we can see um Things like immune cell subsets and 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 uh like C D four to C D eight ratios. And so we have some good data, which I will say uh tends to be um we, we can tell immune system age and immune system subsets are generally improved by things like vitamin D, like you know, uh zinc, like growth hormone or growth hormone secretagogues, right? Um so those are relatively intuitive because we know with growth hormone they're regenerating the thymus, we know the effects of vitamin D and zinc on the immune system. Um, but but I would also say that the thymus and alpha one, that, that peptide as well, um, as a way to uh to uh, both help with uh, developing antibodies to the vaccine. Um, it's been used as a vaccine adjuvant for things like the the traditional flu and was able to increase vaccine efficacy by around 35%. Um, but along with that, you know, uh, it's about mitigating, I should say it's about encouraging your immune system to mount a response to the virus and, and to try and clear it from the system as soon as possible. So, so I'm a big fan of thymus and alpha as well. And So so I, I would say that those are all in my bucket of things which might help with uh, potential infection.
0: Any any perspective on invermectin and quercetin or those things you should get? Th- should we go to our doctor and ask that. You know, uh, uh, there, there's definitely
1: some good data out there uh, in terms of uh, ivermectin and how it might help. Um, I, I, You know, one of the problems with ivermectin is that um, traditionally from wholesale pharmacy manufacturers, it is not able to be done outside of veterinary use. And so um, getting uh, an appropriate data set and seeing how it works in patients can be difficult and getting it distributed to patients can be honestly difficult as well. And so, so uh, you know, although the, the data does look promising, I, I can't give any sort of anecdotes about uh, our physician's experience um, just because I, I don't know very many people who are using it at large scale
0: understood can we talk about some of your best practices for epigenetic or methylation uh, enhancement you know it's hard for you to speculate because everyone's very different we will acknowledge that but i'm sure there's some things you've seen that kind of ubiquitously work and last time we you offered some peptide protocols um, specific to something different but specific to maybe longevity and heart health and all these methylation uh, implications i'd love to hear what you think is efficacious yeah, so, so uh,
1: as I mentioned, most of the data up to this point has been epidemiological, right? So it's, it's been based on large-scale populations and looking at, at, at the, the, I should say, the, the different features of their lifestyle, which might be correlated to better or worse ages as measurement by these clocks. Um, there have been uh, also five interventional trials published to date looking at a baseline measurement of epigenetic age, a treatment, um, and then an outcome. And, and so uh, I've already mentioned the first one with the TRIM trial. Um, you know, from from a, a diet and nutrition standpoint, there, there's also some interesting... Findings that we know. One is that if you're, uh, you know, if you're particularly overweight, or you think you might have advanced aging to begin with, um, one thing that really consistently works is a Mediterranean diet, particularly at reducing that intrinsic epigenetic age. So it doesn't have much of an effect on the immune system, but it can reduce the uh, that that intrinsic age group. Uh, we know that, uh, uh, for instance. Uh, women who have a 677-CC MTHFR variant um, can be definitely helped uh, by by, uh, methylfolate supplementation or folic acid, uh, just as we talked about earlier with methylation deficiencies. Um, uh, In addition to that, we know that vitamin D is is a way to uh, reduce extrinsic and intrinsic age. In in one clinical trial of around 44 patients, uh, over the course of 16 weeks, it was able to reduce epigenetic age by 1.85 years, um, uh, which was very, very promising as well. So, vitamin D at right around 4,000 IU per day.
0: Do you like liposomal or just normal? vitamin you, do, do, do yeah so I, I would I would prefer
1: liposomal if you're doing it uh, via oral route. um obviously, I think injections are still the best um and oh, so really?
0: yeah, yeah but we we could do it, it.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, vitamin D injections you know uh, I think are are you know uh, generally I would say preferable um but with that being said, liposomal would be the route to go um, uh, I should mention in that particular study they were not using injections or liposomal. they were just doing traditional vitamin D supplementation orally um and so uh, so we would anticipate that that might have even better effects if done in a different dosing uh, mechanism what um, dose in
0: Injection. Sorry
1: to cut you off. Well, so y- y- it depends. I would say on the the, the protocol uh, mm-hmm. that's chosen, but but generally it's going to be right around five thousand IU per day, or there. Essentially, you're doing large volumes over the course of once per week, mm-hmm. um, and so there are a lot of different strategies on that. Um, uh, some. People go up to fifty thousand IU per mL, um, and with IM, uh, you know, depot injection shots, it can be more of a sustained release. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that that's definitely something you could look at as well. Um, uh, yeah, so, so so those I would say some of the, the clinical trials from an uh, epigenetic basis that we've seen work. One other one that I would like to throw out there is is uh, Dr. Kara Fitzgerald uh, published a trial uh, just a few months ago, which which looked at sort of uh, a whole lifestyle regimen, which is probably the most comprehensive type of change. And uh, she was actually even able to document a decrease of epigenetic age around. 2% two years in just eight weeks um, wow. over with with 20 patients uh, in the, the control group and then 20 patients in uh, the treatment group. And so, uh, what we're starting to see is that uh, that more of these interventional trials are coming out and we're able to sort of bet strategies against each other. Um, and so, uh, so those would be some of the things that I would recommend. Anecdotally, um, there are a couple of things that we've seen in our data sets as well, which <laughs> is that, um, as I mentioned, DHEA uh, tends to be a really, really good product. Um, if you're really trying to, to decrease your extrinsic aging rate, thymusin alpha-1 has also been very, very effective. Um, uh, And then in addition to that, uh, I would say anything which helps in this idea of DNA maintenance. Um, And so just sort of giving the body the necessary cofactors, the necessary sort of energy and fuel to to do the DNA maintenance that you sort of lose along with that aging process. One of those things is is supplementation of things which will increase NAD. Um, so, So NAD IVs or iontophoresis or nicotinamide riboside or nicotinamide mononucleotide, we've seen those have some positive effects on the aging rate. Um, um, and, and so I'm, I'm a big fan of, of recommending those as well. Um, and hopefully soon we'll have really good data on things like plasma or plasma exchange where you can actually filter out albumin uh, for some regenerative effects. Those have been really well described by um, uh, the convoys from Stanford. Um, uh, we're hoping to, to back that up. Uh, we've seen in animals that it significantly reduces epigenetic age, I'm hoping to validate that in humans as well. Um, and, and, uh, and so those are some of the, the big things that I would say right now that we know for certain um, to really positively impact that epigenetic aging rate. Um, and then I can't speak enough about stress. As I already mentioned earlier, uh, stress and cortisol have a big
0: impact as well. Um, as far as oral supplementation of NAD, have you seen good data that with that? Like I always kind of, I'm always on the fence about it. It's so expensive. And I, feel, I, hear, I always hear conflicting opinions.
1: Yeah. So, so, uh, NAD itself, even sublingual or, uh, you know, any type of method for, for oral use, I would not recommend. Um, I I just don't think there's any data to substantiate the bioavailability of NAD. Um, with that being said, um, I, the nicotinamide riboside and the NMN, those, those oral precursors, um, I would say that there's still a lot of, um, conflicting, uh, I would say, uh, standpoints from there. You know, a lot of people think that the nicotinamide riboside is better because, um, there are no, uh, cellular transport mechanisms for NMN, but Dr. Sinclair published, uh, you know, a study called in 2019, the exclusive NMN transporter, where he describes an NMN transporter. And, and so that, you know, it's hard to say what's better from, uh, an oral supplementation standpoint, the nicotinamide riboside or the nicotinamide mononucleotide, um, just because the data doesn't, really exists getting uh getting intracellular concentrations of nad is difficult and getting nad metabolome studies is uh, you know only recently available and so uh so i would say that uh from an epigenetic perspective we have not yet seen a major difference between either method of supplementation uh they both seem to have positive effects but we're hoping to do some studies with chronomics um on the nicotin my riboside and compare that with things like ivs in order to get an idea of of how much is actually you know getting into your cell and what's the ideal amount so is an iv the way to go you know, I, I would say at the moment, uh, if you can do an IV, you should. Obviously, it has some restrictions as well because you know they're not as you know you can't do it on a sort of a daily basis. Um, you know, it it, not? Uh, Well, I should just say you could, but usually it's a long drip. Um, you know, it takes a couple hours. It's going to be expensive and uh, and oftentimes comes with a lot of side effects. And so, um, so you know, it, it, IV is definitely the way to go. But but generally, I would say the in is probably the second uh, my my second recommendation, only because uh, it is is more accessible. Um, You know, uh, Chromadex in particular, Chromadex and another company, uh, Elysium, uh, sort of have competitive, um, uh, I would say, claim to the the nicotinamide riboside and and really are the only two companies doing it, Uh, whereas the nicotinamide mononucleotide, the NMN, is much more widely available from a lot of different suppliers. And as a result, uh, that's generally the reason we'd recommend it.
0: Yeah. Are you a fan of ketone esters? Like, I know uh, there's, yeah, I'll just throw that out there and let you see where you go with it. Yeah, well, you know, um, I, I, yes and no. I think uh, yes, I, I think
1: that uh, um, big fan of ketone esters. But in terms of biomarkers uh, to measure, in terms of seeing their effect, I, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure that there, there's anything to measure. But anecdotally, I think we definitely see good results in the patients we've worked with. Very cool. Um,
0: yeah. With respect to peptides and aging, you mentioned a bunch of them in there. You mentioned all the anti-diabetes ones, the uh, GH precursors, anything else stand out? I and the thymus and A1 you also mentioned. Does that pretty much cover them all? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, there's plenty of other peptides, which we would
1: hy- hypothesize would have a, an effect on aging. There are a couple of peptides that, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't think are much avail- available much more any longer, but things like SS31, which have, you know, a direct effect on mitochondrial uh, uh, ATP synthesis and, and aging, you know, uh, th- this is one that always sort of jumps off the page of people when they, you know, it's not hyperbole, it's, it's a scientific fact when they say that one injection um, uh, was the ATP equivalent of six months of daily endurance training exercise mm-hmm. um, in, in some elderly individuals and so there, there are definitely a lot of peptides I, w- I would classify as po- probably, probably having a great impact um, on this metric, but but unfortunately, none have been validated, and, and mm-hmm. we're hoping to change that. And and, and as we do, uh, we'll, we'll absolutely let everyone know. We're currently doing a, a similar trial to the trim trial where we're using a lot of these growth hormone secretagogues like MK six seven seven and the CJC epimoralin, um along with uh, metformin and DHA to sort of see can those be comparable and, and to what degree?
0: Do you do you like the secretagogues as compared to the exogenous GH?
1: Uh, yeah. You know, I generally would say that yes, especially if you can get tesamoralin, which is, you know, incredibly stimulatory. Um, and, and a lot of times you don't need uh, as much exogenous growth hormone or you don't want to shut down some of those pathways. Um, you know, the thymus doesn't just have growth hormone receptors or, or IGF-1 receptors. It also has growth hormone releasing hormone receptors, which would be something like semoralin or, or, uh, or the CJC. And so with that being said, I think that uh, definitely using some of those could, could be very, very helpful.
0: Very cool. So when someone sends in their true diagnostic test, they're getting an extensive report of all this stuff.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, I should say, from a direct consumer basis, we're we're rather limited on what we can do. Um, the majority of these reports come through physicians. and so um, so uh, I would generally recommend trying to go through a physician if possible, because you unlock a lot more relevant information. Um, and, and so that would that would definitely be my recommendation. But with that being said, even as a direct consumer, you can you can learn your biological age, you can learn your intrinsic and extrinsic age, um, and and, uh, and you can still learn a lot of great insights. Um, or, and we could even you know even refer you to another practitioner who's specialized in some of these treatments and protocols in in case you're interested. And so you get all these information. um, And and, and one of the big things about our platform is it's also built for the future. Um, You know, we we really... we believe that you can't just offer a test at this point in stage because of all the new developments. The next two weeks, there's probably going to be another algorithm created which might predict a risk of of a certain type of of disease. And so, uh, we built our platform to be really sustainable for a long time. Really, you know, hopefully for the next five years to 10 years, uh, we'll continue to issue reports every four weeks based on different um, uh, studies which have come out showing links to different health predispositions like, for instance, diabetes or obesity um, or some of those other things where we can essentially take your data and say, you know, if if your data were to be analyzed in the study, this is how you would rank. Um, And this is sort of the dispositions that they found. And so, uh, we we want to be a a sort of a continual resource for all epigenetic methylation, all the studies that come for it, and really how to interpret your body's data um, to to these health-related outcomes. You know, if we just wanted to predict your chronological age, we could very easily do that. Um, But we're not in the business of, you know, forensics or telling you what you already know. We're really interested in how to prevent Uh, unnecessary bad health-related outcomes. And and in order to do that, we're trying to build the links between these methylation marks and disease as best as possible.
0: Does your website contain a link with kind of accredited practitioners or what's the best way for people to get in touch with somebody who's uh, up to date on this stuff? So it doesn't, you know. This is this is still very new for even
1: practitioners. You know, it. Um, you know, most if you were to walk into your doctor's office and ask about epigenetics, the majority would not have <laughs> no <any> idea clinical <laughs> impact. Know. And so, with that being said, we don't necessarily have a database, but uh, I should say a, a public database. But if you would uh, inquire on our, our website, we will we'll find out where you're at and then pro- hopefully direct you to the nearest practitioner. Mm, the good yeah. thing about this nowadays is that telemedicine is much more frequent, and being able to find someone who specializes in this is a little bit easier.
0: I send everybody to our friend Dr. Stickler, uh, so we're appearing on and. and they're the best. They're, they're training the epigenetic coaches, and they're so up-to-date on this stuff. And I know you guys are in talks about doing some awesome stuff, which I'm excited about. And um, and I'm, I'm so grateful for this, and uh, I want to uh, do it all, right? I'm one of these guys who, like I said, I did abuse my body for the first 35 years. Yeah. And now, you know, as a professional bodybuilder, didn't know any better. And now it's time to reverse it. And, and that's why I think all of us listening, and I'll speak for myself and everyone listening, thank you. Thank you for what you do and your entire team, man. And uh, I know there's there's huge financial wins in it for you. I know there's huge financial, or there's huge opportunities in it for us. So I think it's beautiful, man. Everybody wins. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, the we, the one thing we try and encourage
1: is is compete with yourself, right? Get a baseline. Don't be. You know, a lot of people are scared to get this metric because they might see that themselves five years older or ten years older. And and in in my response to that is, who cares, right? You know, right. you, you it want is, to keep, it you, you, Yeah, you want to keep. You can't. You, the only way to, to get uh, to to really get a, a handle on it is to get a baseline and then compete right. with yourself to get it as low as possible. And, right. and that's really what we try and encourage, which is you know, even in our initial reporting, which you probably saw, it's a lot of context, right? Because you know, we've had some athletes, uh, professional athletes, best in their sport, who do everything the right way, um, but you know, they've gone through so much oxidative stress where they're, you know, 40% of this metric is still based on hereditary uh, factors. And so you might even see that if your parents or even your grandparents have lived stressful or or poor lifestyles, that it might be reflected in your epigenetics. And so don't be worried about where you're at, just be worried about where you can be right and get that baseline and try and drive it as low as
0: possible. Well, it's the same as someone who's over fat and doesn't want to take their shirt off and take the picture, right? Like, Hey man, you got to start somewhere. Like the only way to go is up or we hope, right? I- exactly. And, well, and, and you, now you
1: actually have something that you can objectively look at, right? It doesn't have to be this guessing game of, oh, do I feel better this week? Or or am I seeing a result when I skip on the scale? You know, it, it's an objective measurement that's, that's correlated to how you're aging, right? This is almost the, the, the uh, peek into how our bodies are actually aging, right? This, this fundamental process. And that can tell us a lot. And so so uh, don't be scared. You can't manage what you can't measure. So let's get a measurement and, and try and get it as low as possible. And we'll, we'll help you in every way we can.
0: Brian, you're awesome. Thank you so much for being here, man. I truly appreciate your time. Yeah, always a pleasure. Thanks, Ben. That's a wrap, ladies and gents. Thank you so much for tuning into the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben So We talked about a lot of stuff, and I hope you took some notes. And If you didn't, head over to muscleintelligence.com slash podcast. You can get the show notes for this in any one of our podcasts, including links to our sponsors, including links to all the discounts that we offer through all of our amazing show sponsors who make this show possible. Thank you so much to Ryan Smith of True Diagnostics for being here to impart this wealth on us. You guys, this information is life changing, right? If you're willing to take the stuff we give you on this podcast and apply it to your life, you will change your life and the life of other people. So don't take this stuff lightly. I think the worst thing in the world is learning information and not applying it right. And I get the financial restrictions. You can't do everything, but learn what is the biggest limitation for you and go after it, make it a strength. So if it's your energy, improve it. If it's your sleep, improve it. If it's your strength, improve it. Find those one or two things that are the biggest levers for you. Pull it, and improve your life, and and constantly trying to to improve every aspect, whether that be energy, whether that be relationships, whether that be attitude, whether that be fitness, uh, will only, only, only move you closer to your bliss, move you closer to living your greatest life and a body love. Thanks for being here. Thanks again to bubsnaturals.com for always being an amazing supporter of the show. Thank you again to Ryan Smith. Have an amazing day, my friends. Give your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love, and I'll talk to you soon.